Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 20 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Becchione. Welcome to today's episode. The following is a message from Hope for the FASD Journey Community. Hope for the FASD Journey community is a monthly membership, faith-based support community for parents and caregivers of individuals prenatally exposed to alcohol and other substances. Led by Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, two moms living the FASD experience. With more than 40 years of combined adoptive parenting experience, Natalie and Sandra offer abundant knowledge, resources, and hope for families on this journey. Natalie and Sandra are here to support you. Join the community at justicefororphansny.org slash training slash FASD. That's justicefororphansny.org slash training slash FASD. And now this week's episode of FASD Hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 verse 13. Welcome to FASD Hope. It's September. September is FASD Awareness Month. I am with one of my most favorite people in the FASD community. She has been a beacon of hope for me. And uh, we've been talking for like a half hour and we are like, we need to start this episode. And I just love her to pieces. And she is doing so much for the FASD community. We're going to talk about everything that she's doing. She's been on our show twice. She's been on our show in fall of 2020 when we first started FASD Hope. Her topic was teens in FASD. That was a wonderful episode. Highly recommend it. Go back and listen to it. And she was also on again on episode 26. And that was in January 2021, where we talked about climbing down the holiday mountain and co-regulating with with your child. So I am talking about the wonderful, the sensational Shannon Yakabachi, who has many credentials and she has this wonderful, wonderful business and she is helping parents. And today we're talking about something really important for, for anyone, especially for those who have kiddos in public schools, in in any type of educational setting. Today, we're talking about FASD and IEPs. On that very lengthy introduction, but she deserves every bit of it, Shannon Yakabachi, welcome back, my friend, to FASD Hope. Thank you so much, Natalie. I don't know if I can live up to all of those accolades you just gave you me. Can. You can oh and goodness. you do. Oh man. We it like I said, we've been talking and it's just like a, a virtual hugathon here. Totally. So your last episode was in January 2021, and you started your business, I want to say shortly before that, maybe a, a while before that, but you've been doing so much 
in the FASD community and beyond. Can you update our listeners on what you've been doing since we last talked? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, I just, it's been that long? That's crazy. Huh? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we've talked in between right. then, just right. formally. Since the, since the podcast. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, um, my uh, business name changed, actually. Yes. Changed yes. my business name to um, Embracing the Brain. Um, because just like you said with the Hugathon, I just want to embrace neurodiversity and just give all of our brains a big hug. So that's kind of where it came from. And yeah. so we did, um, I did a name change there. Um, let's see what else I became a master IEP coach and in which I help families uh, through the IEP process, but I really am specializing in those individuals with FASD. Um, and because that is just my passion, it is, um, my knowledge, my experience, all of that. And so that's, those are the individuals that I, I mean, I help more, but those are the individuals that, you know, have my heart, of course. Um, so, um, what else have I been doing? Gosh, updated my website. Um, I've just been on this You've been journey. Giving advocacy. Presentations. I've been giving, yeah, I've been giving. I forgot about that. I've been doing presentations to um, employers and organizations and um, universities and online. It's been the mental health community. It has been fantastic. Um, it's just been going. Like a snowball, I kind of forget what I've been doing because I'm just in the mode of go, go, go. And it's been really, really enjoyable. And then you're a mama of this big, huge, wonderful family. Let's not forget that. So, I mean, throw that in there. And you homeschool your your youngest kids. And, and so let's throw that in there, too. And <laughs> And let's celebrate California had something really huge happen, which affects our community. Shannon, let's, let's reshare. Cause you and I know it. And, and it's, I believe, is it on the, is this legislation on the governor's desk, you know, or is it heading there? Let's talk about that. Real quick. It is on the governor's desk to sign. Um, that is one thing I've been really heavily been that I've been doing a lot lately is the advocacy. Um, we've talked about the FASD Respect Act, and I've been doing some of that um, as well. But in California, we have been full force, heads on. Um, it's called Senate Bill 1016, and where FASD becomes a qualifying um I don't want to say category, but qualifying category under the OHI, which is other health impairment eligibility category for special education. So no more does the person with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have to have ADHD or all these other things. Just FASD alone um, can qualify them for um not necessarily qualifying for services, but for assessments to determine if they can have services. So that is huge. And honestly, I'm super hoping it gets signed this week because that would be amazing. I know. Oh my goodness. That is just, uh, I, when that was announced in, uh, I I think a week or two ago when we had our, our monthly legislative phone call that, that just, and I think every single state is looking to California now because we're like, okay, how do we get, how do we do that? So, you know, all of the work, and I know you are just so involved in all the advocacy efforts there in in California. And that is just a huge victory. 
That really is. It's cute. Really it is. took a team. It definitely wasn't me solo at all. There was a team that worked their little heinies off um, for this to happen. And it's we had an incredible senator that put this forward. And um, we are so grateful for the team that did this. Awesome. 100%. And it ties into what we're talking about today with mm -hmm. FASD and IEPs, because now, now more than ever, there are going to be more IEPs that are reflective of FASD and, and kids that have an FASD. So this is really important. We're tapping into like, I'm, 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 we're honing in on your master IEP skills because <laughs> we really want to talk about how parents can advocate at, you know, when they get ready for IEP meetings, when they're there, when they come out and this week in our social media post. So I made sure that Shannon's episode was the only episode for this week because <laughs> she is just doing so much amazing work and all of this information, all of her social media posts. And if you're not following her on, on embracing the brain, please follow her. We'll have all of her links and all of her uh, social media handles and everything. She said she's sharing Shannon is sharing so much wonderful content about FASD, about IEPs, about everything. And Shannon is like, really? She makes these awesome reels and she makes these awesome videos. I mean, I'm just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, she, you are doing it. You are just killing it. So, so let's talk about um, how first, before we start talking about FASD and IEPs, Let's talk about how when you re kind of rebranded Embracing the Brain, how that's grown and what you're doing through that. Okay. It has grown. Like I said, it's been a snowball. Um, it has grown. I've, I actually started looking at some numbers and I have trained more than 1,500 people on FASD oh and neurodiversity oh, and yes. it keeps growing. I've coached multiple families through the process for IEPs. Um, I was interviewed for a uh, an upcoming like movie that's coming out in regards to FASD that's in the works. That's um, I'm super excited. I happened to be able to be traveling um, for a family event and I was able to connect. And I'm super excited that I had that opportunity. Met some amazing people. Um, so I'm waiting for that to come out. Um, gosh, been able to travel and learn and just grow even personally. Um, and what I'm really excited about too is, you know, being a mom and, and all of that and all of what I'm already doing, I'm, I went back to school myself for my master's degree in psychology for child and adolescent de development. And that's been something on my plate that's been huge and it's gonna, it's growing, embracing the brain as well. So, because I'm able to take that knowledge and apply that and help that, um, help my clients and help individuals with FASD. And that just, you know, makes my heart happy. So I love it. I love that. Oh Always. my goodness. 15. Yes. Oh my goodness. I know, right? <laughs> Crazy. So Shannon, today we're talking about FASD and IEPs. Um, why is it so important for parents and caregivers to really be educated and advocate for having IEPs for their children or teens with FASD? Well, that's a very good question. Um, part of it is, honestly, it's the law. <laughs> the department, the U.S. Department of Education has stated that students with disabilities must be educated with non-disabled students to the maximum extent appropriate. I didn't make that up. I'm not a lawyer. It's just the law. And um, 
it is important that parents of, of individuals also say students instead of children because um you know teens don't like to be called kids or or or, or children um students with disabilities are entitled everyone is entitled to a free and appropriate public education and there are supports and services available for students with disabilities um, to access their education and so it's important as parents and guardians of individuals with disabilities that we are aware that that's actually out there for them because those must be followed um, in order for the students to access their education. And lastly, and most importantly, idea law is to prepare the child for further education, employment, and independent living. And what that basically means is college, career, and life readiness. Let's talk about an IEP 101. What is an IEP? How is it different than a 504? And why is having either a 504 or an IEP critical for our students? Okay, I love this question so much because I used to get so confused about the two and I finally like, okay, I got this. Okay, so let me explain. A 504 is basically changes to the learning environment to enable students to learn alongside their peers. So basically, it is keeping the children in a general education classroom. It's removing barriers for students with a disability. Um, it is a civil rights law to stop discrimination. A 504 is basically a blueprint on how the school is going to provide the support and remove the barriers at school for the student with a disability. Now, an IEP is different because it's a blueprint for a child's special education experience at school. And what that means is a special um, individualized special education and related services. So basically, it is a federal special special education law. A child must have one of the 13 eligible disabilities and it must affect the child's educational performance and or their ability to learn and benefit from the general education curriculum. So basically, a really great thought process or a way to kind of separate the, the two is a 504 is accommodations within the classroom environment with general peers, but an IEP is a placement maybe in a specialized academic classroom or such as um, those types of things. So that's kind of, the, that is the difference between the two in very short, I mean, there's more differences. So Shannon, we know that oftentimes our students receive those comorbid diagnoses of ADHD, autism, learning dis disability diagnoses prior to receiving that actual diagnosis of having one of the five conditions under the FASD umbrella. So how are those IEPs and 504s different for that student with an FASD versus a student that only had one of those other diagnoses? So say, for example, autism or ADHD, how would those uh, 504s or IEPs look different? 
That is a very good question. Um, every IEP or 504 should be specific to that individual. They are going to look different for every student, regardless of diagnoses, regardless because of um, each child that, that is being uh, considered for special education, whether it be 504 or an IEP, they're going to go through a battery of, of tests, okay? And to determine, they are determined um, whether they have a 504 or an IEP or nothing at all based on the data that is collected from those tests. Now, what we've noticed though, is students with FASD a lot of times are given traditional accommodations and students with FASD, a lot of traditional accommodations are ineffective and they're not appropriate. And so students with FASD, we have to dig deeper and that's not common. And there's a lot of questions that need to be asked in regards to the data. There is a lot of um, interpretation of data that is not just a standard typical approach um, when you read the scores. Because as you and I both know, we can have a light bulb great brain day and we can have a light bulb horrible day, right? I don't wanna say horrible day, but the light bulb may be off. Um, and you know, these tests are going to be given in the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Idealistic environment, right? And so interpretation of this data can be skewed. So it's important that we understand that because what ends up happening is we assess a child, we interpret this data, we put in accommodations that are typical that we're used to, and they're not working. And we go through a series of, okay, well, they just need more, you know, more minutes of services, or they just need this or that. But we don't address the why. We don't address, well, how is this data different? Did we look at A, B, and C? And why is that? Um, what can end up happening then, all of a sudden, our students have beha more behaviors that start to come to the surface. And when appropriate accommodations are not given, then these students are labeled. Um, they are the problem children. They are, they get to the teen years or the middle school years, like we've talked about before, and they're just rebellious or they're just, you know, being a teenager and they get a poor rap. And it's not because of that, but they're frustrated because their needs aren't being met in the education environment. And so we really, I mean, those, those IEPs, I mean, all IEPs should be very specific and individuals with FASD even more so because it's so atypical. That is great. And and what you said really that you have to dig deeper. That really right there, I think, is is a perfect way to sum up how an IEP or a 504 for a student with an FASD. We know that many, like you said, traditional accommodations are not appropriate, do not work. So with that in mind. Knowing what you know, because Shannon, you have you're like this trifecta of of FASD education. You have that neurobehavioral facets training, you have the IEP training, and you have that parent lived experience training. So, people who are listening really can just benefit from your so many years of of wonderful experience. What 
do you think are the top, let's say top five accommodations that you most often would see um, either on a 504 or on an IEP of a student that has NFASD? Well, I have to tell you, first of all, trying to limit it to five is very difficult to do. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay. So I will do my best because as you were asking me this question, I thought of another one. So I'm just going to go off of what. Just just give me a list then. So let me give you a list. Okay. So let's talk first middle school and high school. Okay. Let's talk them first. Okay. That those students first. One of the, um, common accommodations, and this is with a lot of individuals with with not just FASD, but with IEPs and 504s. It would be more time, more time. Sometimes, a lot of times I see time and a half for either test taking or assignments. But the key is, it's not just that they get more time. They get more time with full credit. See, a lot of times, teachers will say, sure, you can turn it in a week and a half, you know, in a week or a week, you know, it's not due until a week and a half for you, but they still dock the credit. And so we have to make sure that we place in the IEP that specific verbiage. So teachers understand that they're to give full credit. It is huge, no docking points or docking credits if it is turned in late when it's allowed to be turned in late. And that is, that's huge because I, at middle school and high school, they're looking at their GPAs. They're looking at all of those things. And, you know, it's going to frustrate a student if they say, well, I would, she allowed me to do it, but I still got only a C, you know? So that's one. Number two, either a scribe to take notes for the student or my personal favorite, the teacher's notes given to the student. And these notes can be given ahead of time. And the reason being is, A lot of students with FASD have a hard time accessing all parts of their brain fast enough to interpret what is being said in a lecture and being able to write it down to transfer that. If the information is given to them prior, they can follow along better and also have the information that's helpful from at home. So they're not left to just their own filling in the blanks. They're given the information and they can fill in the blanks of what's missing a lot easier. So that's one of my favorites is the teacher notes. Um, Transition prompts is another one. Basically a heads up before changes take place. Um, It can be done in many different ways depending on the age of the student and the activity that you're switching from. And an example can be, um, let's go back to high school and you have a student who's going from class A to class B and in the middle of it, they need to go into see the counselor for something, okay? Um, that student needs to know before before they're heading into class B and not, you know, be stopped and saying, hey, we need to see you in the counselor's office because that's just going to throw everything out of whack. So transition prompts are huge. Um, limiting the number of steps or requests that are made. So if you have, a, if you have multi-step directions, um, give them in the order in which they are to be completed. So not random order, but definitely in the order they are to be completed and limit the number of steps. It's very helpful. And allow them to respond orally instead of written or type instead of write. Yeah, even like elementary students. Some students really have a hard time with fine motor skills. And sometimes just typing is okay. 
even if we're, you know, uh, there's a lot of, well, they need to be able to write. They have to be able to fill out an application. They will eventually, but everything nowadays, real world, to coin Catherine Richer, um, real world is we type everything, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 98% of everything is typed. Why not let the student do that? Um, helping the student break, um, learn, le helping the student learn how to break things into those long chunks of information. We talked about the steps, but helping um, the student learn how to do that as well, you know, and, and, and that will encourage the student to master one small group before they move on to the next, because sometimes they can't multitask. So those are a few, and there's so many more, because there's usually a behavior intervention plan in place with and our those kids. Are, those are wonderful. I've written them all down, and we'll be posting them in this week's social media notes. And just, you know, my, my very limited grasp knowledge of the neural behavioral model. So many of these tie into those executive functioning deficits that we know of. So you're yes. basically providing those executive functioning um, accommodations that we know, you know, we've, we've talked about so much on our podcast that when our students get to those middle school years, it's like, that's why that gap widens because there's more demand. So if, again, I'm playing investigators, so, you know, hopefully our audience um, can understand. So if we go into those meetings and, and knowing that these are the, some of the top things that will help specifically our students with FASD, you know, we're being proactive, you know, and that's another thing too. One of your, and, and we're posting it this week in social media. One of your posts that I love talks about how an IEP it's, it's a fluid document. It's a fluid plan. It's not like, boom, that's it. That's it. You know, there you go. No, it's no. constantly needing to be updated, constantly needing to be in motion. So um, I, this reflects that. And I love that. And, and, and these accommodations really also reflect that they can be tweaked too. You know, you can start something and say, oh, we need a little more of this, or maybe a little le less of this. It's really important for parents to know that, that, that you're not just saying, okay, here's the IEP. That's it. Everything's done. No, no. It's, it's just like you said, the, the blueprint for that experience. That's wonderful. So this is for middle school and high school. Let's talk about our littles. Let's talk about those elementary years. What are the 504s or the IEPs going to look like for our students with an FASD? That is an amazing question. I love this one. One of the um, top ones for individuals with FASD and ADHD, since it is the most common um, comorbid diagnosis, is um, there are no uh, removal of recess for a consequence. Yes. And we know in the state of Minnesota, that's actually a law. And in Georgia. I just found that and, out. Too. Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> awesome. I know, that's right? I'm awesome. hoping that other states will follow because yes. it is... Um, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I actually was just in an IEP meeting two weeks ago, and that's what they had wanted to do. And so it was great because I was able to ask the teacher, teacher, when this student comes is does not have their energy outlet. What is that like for you when all the students return from recess? And it was a great conversation piece because they realized, oh, this is a bad idea. 
-hmm. Let's think of something different. So we were able to come up with something completely different that was appropriate for that student um, to learn and, you know, and not have that recess taken away. So that's one. Um, Responding orally is another. Um, So that's, that's effective for all. Um, I'm trying to think of another one that we had. Um, You know, one that I remember. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm sorry. One that I remember our son having, you know, before we switched over to homeschool was having extra materials. So extra materials for home, extra materials for school, and even extra materials for for tutors. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's one that's still widely used. Um, Yes, we utilize um, a lot of fidgets um, can be utilized as well. Sometimes um, in elementary is also having them have that safe place to escape to that it is okay for the student to um, to get up and not necessarily move around the classroom because we don't want them to be, a, you know, we don't want that to be a distraction to the other students, but they're able to get up and go, you know, retreat to a specific place in the classroom for them to be able to regroup. And maybe they have a tent that's set up in the classroom or pillows or whatever is in that environment for the need for that student um, and allowing them that. And that a lot of times is in a behavioral intervention plan. Um, and some what I um, like to have collaborate with the teams is a nonverbal cue to the teacher, like, hey, I need to get up. So that it's not a, the kid just gets up out of nowhere and disrupts the class. It's, you know, there's something that the teacher and the student without calling the student out you know, because we don't want our, um, the, the students don't want to be, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, ostrich out or whatever the word I'm looking for yeah, is. Singled out. Yeah. Singled out. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of it. Singled out. They don't want to be singled out. They already feel singled out yeah. already. Yeah. So whenever we can give a nonverbal um, you know, cue to a teacher or to a student, that's always a, a, a big one um, for them. And another um, accommodation that I became aware of, um, especially speaking with um, a mutual friend of ours, um, the implementation of therapy dogs and service animals in the classroom. I actually interviewed a mom whose daughter has a service dog specifically trained in FASD. And that service dog is part of her IEP plan and experience because that service dog is her safe place, you know, since, since, and we know that our, our students and our kids, I say that affectionately respond so well to animals, nature, you know, all those are, those are part of their strengths. So being able to have access to his or her service animal there in the classroom, that can that's another way of being proactive and mm-hmm. and having those you know so okay if she's if if the student's feeling overwhelmed or student student is starting to feel overstimulated that that service animal is there to help her regulate right and actually it's it's fun I, i'm glad you mentioned that too because um whether it is whether we have an elementary student or a middle school high school student um not only animals but for my own child um, we had actually, it wasn't even a service animal. Funny thing was, it was her cell phone. Her cell phone could not be taken away because that cell phone was her lifeline to me to help her regulate. So when she was feeling frustrated or something was going on, that lifeline could not be taken away. And it's hard because a lot of, you know, it, there's a lot of resistance around that. Um, but that can happen. 
you know, that, that can happen because of that lifeline, that anxiety, the other things that will take place that can be an accommodation in their IEP or 504. That's, that's, I'm so glad you're mentioning that Shannon, because I know that for so many of our kids too, having that, um, whether it's an animal or whether it's an object or something that they can experience to help them regulate, it's almost like you're, you're, you're putting that accommodation of someone, something or, or an animal to come along and help them co-regulate, you know, when the parent's not there, when that support person is not there. That's wonderful. One more thing too. How about in, I'm thinking in elementary settings, things like um, more sensory breaks, things that are those still accommodations that are widely used in 504s and IEPs? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And the key is, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was going to talk to you about the sensory breaks. Um, We need to be very specific on what those are. What are the sensory breaks? What does that look like? What time are they happening? How do we know that they're happening? Um, Sensory breaks are huge. And, but it's important to know what those look like for each individual student. I mean, it can't just be, oh, we have a sensory break and they can go in the class, you know, go in the back of the corner and play with their fidget. Maybe that is appropriate for some, but maybe the sensory break needs to be that the student needs to go outside and spin in circles for 30 seconds, you know, for a minute and a half. You know, we don't know. So, um, but sensory breaks is a big one that is used in elementary schools, 100%. And there's also the ability to have like, um, when you mentioned um, extra tools, some allowing the student to draw like in a coping in a, in a, in a binder of some sort, just to, to sketch and doodle. Um, they may listen better that way. They may be coping that way. Um, so allowing that opportunity to happen. And I love that, you know, and that's something that you and I, we homeschool. Um, I, I'm homeschooling our daughter and I know you're homeschooling your, your girls. And that's something that we also do as homeschoolers. You know, we allow my daughter, you know, she, when she's learning and and her, she, um, when her brain is in the, the moment of processing information, she usually needs to be engaged in either art or sketching or something like that and orally take it in. And then she'll, she'll, she'll give it right back to me. So, and I remember our son in his homeschooling journey, he, we would work on, you know, math facts or, or, you know, spelling words while he was on the trampoline or while he was on the scooter. And, and those things we do at home, you know, as homeschoolers, but those are things that can happen in the school setting. But like you said, you have to be very specific about it because it's going to look different for every child or student. Correct. Awesome. Awesome. And again, I'm writing all of these wonderful ideas and and accommodation ideas down. Um, Let's talk. Okay. So as a facets neurobehavioral educator, as an FASD educator, as an IEP coach, and as a mom, what are the best tips that you can recommend to parents as they go into the school year and getting ready for 504s and IEPs? All right. I love this question. Um, Number one, I'm going to go back to what I had said before that understand that a diagnosis does not automatically qualify your child for services. Number one. Okay. Um, Number two, a parent concerns letter or a parent input statement is very important in the beginning, especially, but always throughout the entire IEP process, because we want, you want to address 
those top concerns that you have for your child. Usually we have three to five main ones that we want to address. Again, since that fluid document, we can address all of them, you know, eventually throughout the child's educational career. Um, So have that parent concerns or parent input statement ready and understand that you're not going to solve all the problems in a day or in one IEP. Okay. Um, Always have someone go with you, a friend, a coach, somebody. And the reason why I say that it's even myself as an IEP coach, I have brought people along with me because when it's your own child, it is so easy for those emotions to get out of control. (laughs) Let's just be honest. Let's throw it out there. It's easy. I mean, I can get triggered when talking about my kid, right? And I'm trying to get people to understand. And just having someone even in the room helps keep everyone focused and emotions there. And also reminders. You can have that conversation with that friend or that coach to say, don't forget this. I had someone, the whole thing about full credit. I was so focused on give my student this time. And my friend sitting in the room said for full credit. Every single time, because I forgot to say that statement. So just even if it's just that, that's huge to bring someone. Always request a draft IEP before the meeting. And I usually like to ask about at least three days. And the reason why it is not a predetermination. Schools can get very worried that, oh, well, you're going to think that we're predetermining what's happening. No, a draft IEP and all this assessment information ahead of time. And the reason why, it needs to go to not only the parents, but the entire IEP team, because this saves time. It saves so much time, because when everyone can come to the IEP meeting prepared, then we're not just reading the reports. We are allowing collaboration as opposed to an information dump. We come prepared with, okay, My child doesn't need services in this area. We don't even need to talk about that. This is great. Thanks for that data. Let's talk about the ones where my student needs, you know, my child needs help in this area. Okay. Let's talk as a team what we can do for the student in this area. We don't even have to worry about math. They're a genius or whatever it is. You know, they're on target, right? But we need to work on this other piece. And I'm going to quote my friend, Heather, Heather Wright, she's a fellow master IEP coach. She actually just put it out there like yesterday or today. And her and I, she, her and I were talking about this. Make sure your IEP passes the stranger test is what she called it, the stranger test. And what she said was, basically, if someone were to pick up your child's IEP, would they be able to implement it immediately and know exactly what's going on? So like we talked about the sensory breaks. You know, asking the questions, what are the sensory breaks? What do they look like? When do they happen? How long are they? Who's providing that service? If you were to pick up and move across the United States, can that team pick up where the other team left off? So she called it, her name was Heather Wright. She's Heather Wright Consultant. She's great. And she was a teacher and admitted the same thing that it's so easy to forget to put those things in. So how that happens to make sure that it passes that stranger test, I'm going to say to parents, ask a ton of questions. Ask 
without asking questions we don't know. We provide a lot of information, but we don't ask. What does it look like? Teacher, tell me what, what Johnny's doing in the classroom. What does that look like? What are you working on? How is that working out? And that's those are my top five or six right there. Those are my top there. And there's more, of course, but I'll give you those. <laughs> well, and if you want to know more, you can get in touch with Shannon. So first of all, I have been I, I haven't written this furiously, these notes like this in ages. This is great. This is like, yeah, this is what we need. So again, all of the these wonderful information, tips, resources will be in this week's social media post. So now Shannon's amazing business, amazing advocacy, amazing resource. That's the word I'm looking for. Shannon, you are an amazing resource for not only the FASD community, but beyond the FASD community. Let's talk about Embrace the Brain and how listeners can get in touch with you. Oh, well, first I have to say thank you for the compliment. That was very sweet. Um, and listeners can't see, but I'm totally red right now. I'm totally blushing. <laughs> um, but if you want to um, get in touch with me, um, you can go to my website. Sh um, it's just embracingthebrain.com or email me, Shannon at embracingthebrain.com. It's just all the same um, because I would love to help anyone I possibly can, especially in this FASD community. <laughs> And let's talk about your aunt. You're very active in social media. What are your social media handles? Oh, yes. So my social media handles, basically, um, for Instagram, it's my name. It's Shannon dot and just start spelling I and A and it should pop up. It's Yakabachi. I know it's the longest name probably in the history and it's not easy to spell or understand. You know, with someone me, <laughs> with someone with the last name Vecchione, right? that's another reason why you and I like get along so well. Yakabachi and Vecchione, you know, you can't yep. get more unique than that. Right. So, so that's yes. my Instagram there. And then yes. on, on Facebook, it's just Facebook. It's in, just search for the page Embracing the Brain. Embracing the Brain. Yes. And again, we'll have those handles in today's program notes. Shannon, it is always just, it's so much fun. I forgot how much fun it is to talk with you and record <laughs> sessions with you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I am just, again, so excited to hear about the legislation that's happening in California because that gives me so much hope for the rest of the country that other states can say, hey, this is what they did. Let's duplicate it. So yes, I, yeah. I love that. Um, you know, I end on hope because that's what we need to carry us through our journey. What words of hope? This is a, this is a meaty topic we're talking about. 504s, IEPs, and parents, caregivers, we often get, like you said, we often get very emotional because mm -hmm. you're talking about our students and we, we just want everything that, that can help them succeed in the school environment. What words of hope do you have for our listeners today about this topic and about how they can just really advocate in the best way they can for their students? I want to share with you that even though it's emotional and even though it's very easy to go in guns blazing because we want the best for our kids, IEP meetings do not have to be us versus them. Collaboration and teamwork is possible. And when we collaborate with the team, the person that benefits the most 
is the student and they're the ones that matter. And on those amazing words of hope, Shannon Yakabachi of Embracing the Brain and many, many other ventures. It is always a pleasure having you on FASD Hope, and I know you'll be back on next year. Thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.